Welcome to Coastal Conversations, a monthly program that deals with major issues confronting the nation's coastal areas, both marine and Great Lakes. This program is made possible through the generosity of the Roddenberry Foundation. I'm Jerry Schubel with the Aquarium of the Pacific, and I'm your host. Today we're going to explore the topic of increasing community resilience. This is one of NOAA's priorities. NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, this nation's ocean and atmosphere agency. In November of last year, we explored enhancing coastal resilience, and today we will dive more deeply into this topic. I'm joined today by Dr. Russell Callender, Acting Administrative, Assistant Administrator for NOAA's National Ocean Service. Russell has more than 20 years of experience in ocean science, ocean management, and ocean policy. He's worked in a variety of places within NOAA, and he has a PhD from Texas A&M University. He brings great experience and expertise to this program. Welcome, Russell. Let's start with some definitions. What do we mean by community resilience? Thanks for having me on the show today, Jerry. Uh, I think the the simplest way to think about what resilience means is that is the ability to bounce back from a challenge. The National Academies of Science has a more formal definition that we typically use here in NOAA, which is the ability to prepare and plan for, absorb, recover from, and more successfully adapt to adverse events. As you've discussed on the program before, communities are uh, becoming more and more uh, vulnerable to certain threats. When we talk about communities, we may be talking about a small localized group of people. In other cases, we, we may be talking about a broader landscape that includes urban areas, industry, transportation, and other sectors. So when but we say, Russell, when we say bounce, bounce back from a challenge, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, we stay in the same place, we have to adapt, and adaptation can take a variety of forms. Is that correct? Uh, th that's absolutely true. I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, responding to a variety of events. This could be storms, it could be flooding, droughts, wildfires, tsunamis, but also long-term changes. And so generally, when we think about resilience, uh, we, we think about it in terms of three fundamental dimensions, uh, economic, uh, social, and ecological. And I can walk you through a little bit more detail if you'd like me to do that. We'll come back to that. Uh, but so how is resilience related to vulnerability? Do they mean the same things? Or what, what is the difference? Well, it's a, resilience is really a community's response to vulnerability. If we don't understand what makes us vulnerable, what threats we might face, it's going to be really difficult to prepare for those threats. And so what you, what you need to start thinking about to build resilience is an assessment of risk, including the likelihood of a threat, the cost of preparing for it, and the cost of not acting. Uh, so actually, did you have a slide from Katrina that you, should, you could show, Jerry? Yes, I think that we do. Let's see if we can bring that slide up. There you go, Russell. So vulnerability or risk is going to change depending on where you live. So sea level rise uh, in Louisiana example is happening at the same time as land subsidence, which means the land in some parts is sinking uh, at the same time that sea level rise. So if you have a major event uh, like a Katrina, combine that with subsidence of the land and sea level rise, you're going to have a larger impact. Uh, fundamentally, though, what may happen in Louisiana would look different than what would happen in Long Beach or in Washington, D.C. 
And so variability uh, in vulnerability, that's an important uh, issue to be addressed since vulnerability is a function of geography, climate, weather, season, geology, building codes, etc. Since that's true, and since, as you point out, Long Beach's issues for climate change and, and uh, being a resilient community are quite different from New Orleans, how do you design and execute a national program to increase community resilience that has relevance across the country? Well, let me give you a, a little bit of background and I can dive right into that answer. I mean, there's three major things you have to do uh, to, to respond to vulnerability and to be more resilient. You need to focus on preparedness, you need to focus on response, and you need to focus on recovery. So preparedness can be all those things that community does when there's not an imminent threat. A couple weeks ago, I had the ability to uh, visit uh, Cannon Beach in Oregon. And the Oregon coast, is, as you know, Jerry, is really well known for its amazing scenery and natural resources. However, but because of where uh, the coast lies off Oregon, it's, a, it's an area of great instability. Uh, powerful earthquakes, uh, just like you could have in California, are possible in the Cascadia subduction zone off the coast of Oregon. And so a tsunami or major wave could occur just 15 to 20 minutes after an earthquake. So the community of Cannon Beach has done a lot of work to prepare for such an event, uh, which is really about education, it's about outreach, it's about individual preparedness, family preparedness, uh, along with planning for emergency services, evacuation, economic recovery, and the like. Uh, when I was there in town, I was really impressed by the, com the community's really comprehensive approach to evacuation planning and the fact that they're looking at moving key facilities out of harm's way, such as schools. Uh, they're spending a considerable effort to, uh, to really educate the population. And one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting there is they had an evacuation route fun run the day after I was there. Um, however, it was also pretty sobering for me uh, to see Red Cross trailers with emergency supplies pre-positioned in the hills above town. So it really brought it home the need to be to be fundamentally prepared. Okay, so you say there are those three elements: preparedness, response, and recovery. And since the in order right, to be so prepared, you have to know what are the issues that your community is most vulnerable to, whether it's fire or sea level rise. So it seems to me that communities have to get involved in doing these self-studies and involve experts like you and others from NOAA in doing these self-studies? You know, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost a community-by-community community approach that you have to think about. Uh, there's a couple ways that states are making long-term decisions now. So let me give you a few examples. The state of Delaware uh, now requires that sea level rise data is incorporated when they construct uh, state-funded projects. Rhode Island has developed a property guide to help homeowners understand climate change, erosion, and other processes that can impact property. And in the state of Maryland, where there's about a thousand state-owned facilities in vulnerable coastal areas, uh, the state has issued a report with coastal construction and design guidance. So part of it's about understanding what you do in a particular region. Part of it's about uh, getting some of the underlying data that you might need. Uh, for example, there was uh, some work done, I called it Hydropalooza, uh, in Alaska's Kachemak Bay area, where they needed to uh, spend a fair bit of time mapping the seafloor, the coastline, uh, so they could better understand uh, 
what the impacts might be of, uh, of climate change and sea level rise in that area. So it was using ships, aircraft, land teams, et cetera. Um, so they can really do some longer term planning, make better decisions for marine transportation, protecting communities, access fisheries and critical habitats, and really understand how the bay and the area around it could respond to changes. And fundamentally, us in NOAA, we think about the information that we're providing that can be used to actually make decisions uh, as environmental intelligence. And I know that environmental intelligence is a major theme of uh, the administrator of, of NOAA, and I think it's an important one. And so it, it seems that you start, you look at the nation and what the threats are to our nation from climate change. And, and other things. And then you have to scale down to the region and ultimately each community has to do this self-study but take advantage of all of the data and the tools that, that are made available to them from NOAA and, and from other agencies. Would you agree with that? Exactly, and one of the things that's, that's really critical to uh, a lot of what NOAA and other agencies do is we need to listen uh, and understand the needs of, of the communities and really pay attention to those as we start to help them sort out what they need to do to become more resilient. Yeah, it's back in 2009, actually, that NOAA asked uh, the Aquarium of the Pacific to convene a workshop for NOAA and USGS, and it was called a Community Framework for Responding to Sea Level Rise and Inundation. And that was quite a few years ago, but back then we brought in Delaware and also Rhode Island because they were uh, well ahead of many of the other parts of the country. And um, it sounds like they still are. Is that uh, true? Yeah, absolutely. They've, they've certainly been very progressive in terms of their planning to, uh, to deal with resilience uh, longer term. So you mentioned the importance of data and, and tools. And um, NADA, uh, NOAA provides a lot of tools and it provides a lot of data. Data aren't very useful to uh, people who are making decisions in the local community. They want information, and that means that you have to integrate the data and transform them into information. And some of those are tools that they can use. Say a word about some of the ways that uh, you not only provide much of the nation's data, but you transform it into information for decision makers at all levels. Well, there's a lot of, lot of examples I, I can uh, certainly provide on that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so some of the tools that we provide uh, may include uh, something we call a coastal flood exposure mapper. And this is to uh, really display in a visual way what shallow uh, coastal flooding or flood zones or even storm surge would look like in a particular place. Uh, for example, this is... Uh, uh, a tool that you could look at uh, an area that you know it's it's uh, you know, an image let's say of uh, uh, you know, your the square there in your uh, uh, town square and you can get a sense of what that would actually look like with different scenarios of sea level rise and this is all mapped to uh, if you will people data uh, such as population centers and so communities that are uh, impacted or could be potentially impacted by major storms could use this information when rebuilding after the storm to make them more resilient. We've also developed another kind of tool in the Great Lakes basin called the Lake Level Viewer. 
Uh, one of the big challenges in the Great Lakes isn't uh, the rise of water, but it's in many cases uh, water levels are declining. And so again, it's a visualization tool that can help uh, users understand what lake level changes would mean from them. And so they can communities can use this information to determine what, what preparations they need to do to make the most sense in planning for water level change scenarios. So that, that's an important distinction, I think, because between if you compare the Great Lakes and the nation's uh, marine coastal areas, uh, sea level is rising all along the, the marine coast. It rise, it, the relative rate of rise is quite different in some areas like the Gulf than in places like Southern California because of movements of the, the earth relative to the ocean. But as you say, in the Great Lakes, the, the worry there is the loss of, of lake levels or the de decline of lake levels and what it means to uh, recreation and marinas and uh, even shipping. And um, so I think it's interesting that NOAA not only provides the data and the information for the marine coast, but also for the, the Great Lakes. And um, we're going to be coming back to you at some point from Long Beach because our new mayor, Robert Garcia, he wants to make Long Beach a, an example of a climate resilient city. And he was just sworn into office in July and he, this is something that he's committed to doing. And in keeping with what you've said, seems to me the first issue for Long Beach is to identify what aspects of climate change are we most vulnerable to. And it won't be sea level rise here. It's not that it's unimportant, but there are other things that are more important. I think hot spells and drought and fire weather will be more important to us. And then we're going to have to look at, so how do we respond and how do we increase our resilience? And you in NOAA, you have tools, the, the National Drought Monitor, you have a tool for almost all of these these uh, issues that we have to cope with. I'd like you to say a word about that. And then he, what he wants to do is to recruit mayors from a couple of other cities in different parts of the country that have different vulnerabilities so that two or three cities could work together and show the principles are the same, the vulnerabilities are different, and what you have to do to become resilient will vary geographically. Comment, please. Absolutely. So there's, there's, it's really, it's about metrics for measuring success. How can you tell if you're resilient? What does it look like? Uh, what does better or uh, more resilient look like in a community? And so fundamentally, you need to understand where you are today in terms of being able to uh, uh, prepare, respond, or recover from some kind of major event. Uh, you know, clearly it's, it's not gonna be uh, uh, you know, hurricanes on the, on the West Coast, for example. Um, you know, so you need to understand where you are today in terms of, of being resilient. You need to understand what you can do to, to change. And then you need to, to track some of these changes to see if your efforts are successful. So there's a, a tool that you mentioned Sea Grant earlier that uh, the Mississippi Alabama Sea Grant Consortium developed called the Community Resilience Index. And this is a, a, really a tool that can be used community by community to identify areas in which they can become more resilient. It's a, essentially a self-assessment uh, where you can score yourself. And what it's really useful for is, uh, is understanding your, uh, or increasing your awareness of risk. 
it's can serve as a baseline. So if you do make some changes, you could get a sense of what it looks like down the road. You mentioned wanting to compare resilience between different communities. The, the challenge with a tool like this, as good as it is, is it doesn't really allow us to compare uh, resilience from one community to the other. So there, there's some fundamental challenges about um, measuring resilience. You know, our, our understanding uh, uh, of indicators required to measure resilience is pretty incomplete at this point. So that's, you know, a, a, that's an area then that will require some focus in the next uh, few years, and I would agree with that. You mentioned that in all of these, public education becomes very important. And Sea Grant is a great example where we have these programs around the nation's coast, including the Great Lakes coast. And in many ways, and Sea Grant is part of NOAA, in many ways, they are your boots on the ground, it seems to me, in uh, making our communities more resilient. And every Sea Grant program has a partnership with a, a university, so they have access to not only NOAA researchers, but also to uh, university researchers, and they have the partnership with local communities, which is important uh, to everyone, I think. The other organization that I think has a lot of potential is Coastal America and the Coastal Ecosystem Learning Center Network. There are 23 Coastal Ecosystem Learning Center networks in the US, one in Canada and one in Mexico. And in the aggregate, they get about 25 million visitors every year. It seems to me that, uh, again, th these can be the boots on the ground to get communities involved to do all the things that, that you've talked about. Um, what, what are, what's your take on Coastal America and the CELC, the Coastal Ecosystem Learning Center Network? Well, I, I think you basically tee that up very nicely. The Coastal Ecosystem Learning Center Network is, is frankly a very important tool tool in the NOAA toolkit for reaching out to people. Uh, you know, having this large network combined with a network like the Sea Grant Extension Program, frankly, is a gem in, uh, in the, the crown jewel of America, if you will. You know, I think there's three things that sort of come to mind very quickly about the, the value of the Coastal Ecosystem Learning Center Network. First is these institutions are an integral part of the communities that you serve. So you're already connected in the community. You've got people, secondly, you've got people coming to the museums, aquariums, and science centers that are primed to receive information. They're coming there to learn. And third, there's a wealth of knowledge in those uh, the, the CELC institutions about how to educate the public about resilience. And these educators are in the community every day. And and fundamentally, it's, it's you know, when it comes down to resilience, um, everybody plays a role in terms of uh, uh, of becoming resilient. It's about choices that people make every day about where to build, uh, where to live, uh, you know, where to go on vacation. There's a lot of choices that people make pretty much every day about resilience. And a, a network like the Sea Grant Extension Program or the CELC network really can help in terms of educating uh, the rank and file citizens in this country. And I think where you say can help, I think, you know, tools are no of no value unless you, you use them. And I think the partnership with NOAA, which provides the data, the, the tools, then we should be at this, this end. And we're one of these coastal ecosystem learning center networks. 
we should be able to do something within the community because as you say, each of us is embedded in a community and we are involved in public education. So my hope is that uh, in the very near future we will be able to energize this network around the, th the theme of increasing community resilience. You want to add anything else to that or did th is that about all just, just one more thing. I think it's a two-way two -way street of communication because, you know, it's, it's great for, uh, you know, for that uh, coastal ecosystem learning network to be providing information to people. But I think it's also useful to understand what people are concerned about. And if we can use a network like CELC uh, to help us understand uh, what challenges people are facing or what they don't understand or what needs they think they might have for resilience, That'll be useful for us as we try to refine some of the tools, some of the education, some of the outreach uh, opportunities that we have in NOAA as well. I agree with you. I think there's a great opportunity with, uh, and there's a lot of unrealized, unfulfilled potential for that partnership. It, it's clear that NOAA's National Weather Service has a very large role in NOAA's programs to increase community resilience, but there are other parts of NOAA that are also involved that play equally important parts and uh, you're involved with one, one of those. Say a word about the different parts of NOAA in addition to the Weather Service and Sea Grant and Coastal America that are involved in community resilience. Uh, absolutely, one of the, one of the key things uh, is understanding elevation. Uh, there's a, a, a part of NOAA, the National Geodetic Survey that provides precise positioning information, not only latitude and longitude like you would uh, be able to understand from your uh, your cell phone or other GPS enabled devices, but they uh, very precisely measure elevation in this country. And elevation, particularly along the coast where the coastline changes is really important. So you can understand uh, how high water could get during an event uh, or uh, how high to build a, a levee, such as the case in uh, New Orleans area or how, to, how high to build an evacuation route. So uh, elevations are critical. So NOAA also has a very uh, precise long-term uh, water level monitoring network. And we have a, a, a very long record of measuring water levels around the country. Uh, one of the things that the program that also measures water levels uh, has done is released a study uh, along uh, about the concept of nuisance flooding. Uh, by knowing uh, those, those water levels precisely around the country, they look back at 60 years of information got a sense of uh, the uh, rapidity uh, and frequency of so-called nuisance flooding. So what I really mean by nuisance flooding is it's a it's not a major storm event that's causing flooding. It's uh, it's really it's routine flooding due to uh, sea level rise, due to land subsidence, etc. So there's people in many cities. Uh, uh, particularly on the East Coast, and uh, that are starting to drive through saltwater routinely. Uh, cities like Norfolk, Charleston, Annapolis, and Miami. Uh, you know, so really understanding uh, water levels of what that means so that cities can plan for this nuisance flooding is important. You know, I think not, not uh, a lot of people don't really fully understand how, what NOAA brings to us as a nation and how important it is. You mentioned things where you deal with when there's too much water, whether it's sea level rise or this nuisance flooding. We're on the, on the west coast in the southwest, and in our case, it's not too much water, it's too little water. 
And NOAA also has the leadership role there with your national drought monitor. We're in one of the worst droughts in recorded history, and so we rely an awful lot upon you guys to, for these predictions and then to help us how can we become more resilient in the case of droughts if, they, if this drought that we're in now continues. Say, say a word about the, uh, all the, that part of NOAA. So absolutely. So I mean, you're 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 right on. Sometimes the uh, the issue of water isn't too much; it's not enough. Um, so there's a there's an effort within the Weather Service uh, to really strengthen uh, their their water monitoring across the country and really unify what they do um, in a more more fundamental way. They they built a new uh, water center. Uh, down in Alabama, and uh, the Weather Service is working hard to to really uh, come up to the vision of a, of a national uh, center, a national approach to deal with regional problems related to water. You know, I can't think of a single federal agency that this nation depends upon more than we depend upon NOAA for. And um, one of the things that we try to do that at our aquarium is to educate the public about the roles that NOAA plays in everyone's lives in the United States. And so we have uh, a NOAA West Day where no, different parts of NOAA come together, give talks, have exhibits and demonstrations. And um, I hope that um, this might happen in other parts of the country as well. So two of the priorities for NOAA are a weather-ready nation and environmental intelligence. Both of those are very, very important I would like you to comment on, on how NOAA is going to pursue creating a weather-ready nation and also an in the, making NOAA the, um, the leader in environmental intelligence. If you want to reframe some of the things you've already said around those two particular priorities. Uh, absolutely. So the, the idea of a weather-ready nation is not a program in, in NOAA, it's a, it's a priority goal. It's a fundamental way of enhancing uh, the ability to understand the impacts of weather and how to, uh, how to deal with those challenges and certainly resilience uh, uh, with facing, uh, enhancing resilience in the face of increasing vulnerability to major weather events, extreme storms, and other water events is, is critical. One of the things that um, the Weather Service is doing and NOAA is doing is establishing what they're calling uh, Weather Ready Nation Ambassadors. And so this is a, this is a program really to bring uh, uh, a better understanding uh, more broadly to the community of what it really means to become more weather ready. Uh, so this is a, a program where they're bringing uh, 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 other agencies, nonprofits, academia, and private industry towards really understanding what everyone needs to be to be more resilient. Uh, there's, there's about 900 of these ambassadors uh, across the country. This include television stations, sheriff's offices, universities, uh, nonprofits, private businesses. Uh, it's, it's really about increasing awareness and education. And I would like to underscore the role that you play in bringing other agencies together because you've, you've done that in so many areas. The Department of Interior, the U.S. Geological Survey, FEMA, EPA, all of these are brought together uh, and I think in, to address some of these major issues. 
And the leadership role may start with NOAA, but in some cases then it gets transferred to one of the other agencies. And the challenge is to keep this coordination, collaboration going. And I, we've seen wonderfully successful examples of that. You have, yeah, absolutely. You have a favorite one? Well, there's, fundamentally, there's, there's a lot of players dealing with resilience uh, in many of the agencies, and we really need all of them to be successful. You know, some of the, uh, the we've developed some very uh, strong and tight collaborations with FEMA uh, as they have the lead in responding to disasters. We provide a lot of technical expertise and services, including things like aerial imagery after a storm. Uh, Army Corps of Engineers is is key on a number of fronts. We work with them to develop a infrastructure rebuilding principles document, um, and really working with them uh, uh, on the concept of natural or nature-based infrastructure uh, to help uh, provide buffers to major storm events is is really been significant, particularly because of the Corps' uh, role in infrastructure and flood control. Those are just a couple. And, and I think it, it, the data are very clear that the climate is changing and it's going to continue to change. We're going to have a warmer world where sea level is going to continue to rise. We'll have a more acidic ocean and we all have to work together to figure out how to cope with these changes, how to adapt to them and to make our nation more resilient. And certainly NOAA has a leadership role in that entire arena. We're coming near the end of our time, Russell, and I've really appreciated having you on. Would you like to make a brief closing comment? Sure, absolutely. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for the opportunity today to talk about resilience. This is, I think, a, a topic that's critical to NOAA, and it's absolutely critical to this country. Uh, I, I really, uh, really think this is an area that needs uh, a, a fair bit of work. I guess one of the things that I really want to to bring home is that the time to become more resilient is not during an event or immediately afterwards, but it's the time between events. It's uh, it's we call we'd call it blue sky planning. Planning. You need to plan for uh, becoming more resilient now when you're not in the crisis mode, because these events are going to potentially come more and more frequently, uh, and they're they're not going to get any cheaper. So it's really about a continuing circle of understanding risk, preparing, responding, recovering, and starting again. To, to paraphrase NOAA's administrator, Dr. Catherine Sullivan, it's not a question of if something's gonna happen, it's when something will happen. Right, so we need to start soon, and it, it's not a, it's as you say, it's a long-term commitment uh, to new normal that we're dealing with. And uh, I want to thank Dr. Russell Callender for joining me for this edition of Coastal Conversations. Russell, I hope that you'll come to the West Coast sometime soon, and I'd love to have you and get together with me and the mayor and some others to get your help in, uh, in the initiative that I mentioned to you earlier. Great. I'd love to do that. I look forward to that opportunity, Jerry. Thank you. And I also want to thank the Roddenberry Foundation for making Coastal Conversations possible. Watch your homepage for the date and the topic of the next Coastal Conversation. I'm Jerry Schubel for Coastal Conversations, and we thank you for watching.